Welcome once again to Watershed Writers, the radio documentary series and podcast that features writers creating literature in the Grand River region in southwestern Ontario. On this program, we read books written by local writers and we talk about all kinds of subjects. Hence our slogan, listen local, think global. This is season three of Watershed Writers with me, your host, Tannis McDonald. We are very happy to be partnered with Midtown Radio in Kitchener-Waterloo and to have come under the wing of Matt Rapolt, who keeps things running along with many other people at Midtown. We record on the traditional territories of the Neutral, Anishinaabe, and Haudenosaunee peoples, and we are dedicated to bringing you stories about writers from diverse backgrounds who live and work right here in the region. Our guest on this episode of Watershed Writers is the fabulous poet and editor, Laurie D. Graham. She is the author of four books, including Rove, Settler Education, and The Longer Forgetting, which is a collaboration with artist Amanda Rodenizer about the changing landscape around Kitchener. Laurie's most recent book is the aptly named Fast Commute. The book is described as a lament for places in flux, where industrial, commercial, or suburban development encroaches or invades. Fast Commute takes aim at the structures that support ecological injustice and is grounded in respect for flora, fauna, water, land, and air. It also wrestles with the impossibility of speaking ethically about the environment as a settler living within and benefiting from the will to destroy that so often doubles as nationalism. Laurie D. Graham grew up in Treaty 6 territory near Sherwood Park, Alberta, and she currently lives in the territory of the Mississauga Anishinaabe, near Peterborough, Ontario, where she is a writer, an editor, and the publisher of Brick Magazine. Her first book, Rove, was shortlisted for the Gerald Lampert Memorial Award, and her second book, Settler Education, was a finalist for Ontario's Trillium Award for Poetry. Laurie's writing has been shortlisted for the CBC Poetry Prize. It's won the Thomas Morton Prize and appeared in the Best Canadian Poetry Anthologies. Now I know Laurie as someone who gets things done. In addition to all of her well-deserved writing accolades, I have known her for six years as a terrific organizer and interviewer, someone who is a true literary citizen in every sense of the phrase. If you get the chance to spend any time with Lori, I'm telling you, you should do it. Welcome, Lori D. Graham, to Watershed Writers. Thanks for having me, Ken. 
It's a pleasure to have you. You're a returning interview for us because we had uh, you on the show a little while ago in our first season talking about uh, Poems for the Watershed, Sweetwater, the collection edited by Yvonne Blomer for Caitlin Press. But we're here today talking about your latest book, Fast Commute, which came out in 2022 with McClelland and Stewart. Now, I want to go back to the beginning. What we're calling the beginning in, in uh, 2017, when I first met you, do you remember this event? I do. Okay, so for everyone listening, Laurie put together this great poetry reading for water. So she asked uh, me to come and read some work about water at a fundraiser that was opposing the, the Peace River Project in, in Alberta. Well, can I have you gloss what you remember about that night and how it all came together? It was actually a fellow, at the time, Kitchener Waterloo area, area poet Pam Mordecai's idea to do something that was a reading in opposition to the Site C Dam in northern British Columbia. She had heard, I think, from Rita Wong about the Poets for the Peace project. Pam was actually the first poet I met in Kitchener-Waterloo. And we actually met in Winnipeg at the Thin Air Festival and decided that we need to, to step out into the Kitchener-Waterloo area where we were both new in town, didn't really know any other writers at the time or not many. And I figured this was a way to kind of get to know who was around. And so we invited you, we invited Madhur Anand, and Sarah Tomey, did we invite Sarah Tomey as well? I can't remember. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And that Pam's yeah. nephew read yeah. something, right? From a play he was writing. That's right. Yeah. yeah. So it was a big clutch of poets reading together at Open Sesame, Dear Departed Open Sesame in, in Kitchener bookstore. And that felt to me like the beginning of something. Certainly. We were all reading for this cause, but we were all there being a poetry community in a way. It was a really nice, warm evening. And it was a cause that that meant something, I think, to all of us as well. It's true. You know, and finding finding writing community is such a such an issue, right? Mm -hmm. It's such an issue. I mean, I think it's an issue in, in big cities as well as smaller places, indeed. And people are always looking for their peeps, their poetry peeps, right? Mm -hmm. Who can I, you know, who can I get together with? And who can I, who can be my beta reader? And who can just look at this draft of something and tell me whether it's a poem or not, right? So I really appreciated um, the effort that, that you went to, to to put that evening together. And I agree, that's a, that's a very good memory. A very good poetry yeah. community memory for me. You talked about being from elsewhere, and uh, right now you're living uh, somewhere other than Kitchener, but you did live in Kitchener for uh, a time and wrote part of Fast Commute here. And I also know that you're from the prairies like I am. Yes. And uh, I want to talk a, a little bit about affinity and for and problems with that landscape. But right now, as someone who has moved across Canada several times, can you say why you came to the Grand River region and what are your memories about living and working here? It was a brief stretch of years, ultimately. It was only a couple of years that I was there, but they were very crucial years to myself as a poet and crucial years to this book. It was in Kitchener-Waterloo that the lion's share of Fast Commute came together. So it was a really fruitful 
an important time. It was kind of just a quotidian logistical purpose that brought me there. My partner and I moved there partly so I could be a little closer to uh, Brick Magazine, whose offices are in Toronto. I was at that time just starting to become the publisher of, of Brick and we were living in London, Ontario, just prior to moving to Kitchener. So we, it was just a, just getting that much closer to the place I needed to be from time to time. And my partner was a precarious uh, sessional at Western and decided that was not where he wanted to, his life's trajectory to, to aim. So he went back to school at uh, Waterloo. So for, for very boring reasons, we moved there. But part of my project when I got there was trying to figure out where I was. You know, it was just learning this place that I really had no uh, overt ties to and trying to understand it in a way that could be in some way meaningful for me, rather than just kind of skidding over the top of a place that I'm living and moving on to the next one. <laughs> I wanted to, to know the topography, the geography, the community uh, of that place. That was my time. Uh, there. It was really marked by uh, me going for a lot of walks and writing a lot of poems. It's hard work being present, isn't it? It's hard yeah. work being present in a place where you, when you don't know its history. And I'm not even talking about deep history, although, you know, that's good to know as well. Um, but I mean, we're talking about you don't even know what used to be on this block of three years ago, right? You don't even know the sort of the, the barest kind of urban history about a place. And it's easy not to look, right? It's easy not to observe. It's so easy not to pay attention. There's There are all manner of ways to avoid getting to know the place you live. Absolutely. And of course, uh, you've chosen uh, walking and poetry, two, two practices that I, I myself am I'm very fond of. And I am interested in the fact that, well, this is our first show that we're recording in the new year. And the New York Times just announced for the bazillionth time, the death of poetry. I'm using that in scare quotes for those of you who can't see what my fingers are doing. The death of poetry. Okay, so they've announced this yet again. Uh, and hilariously, I thought it was hilarious that the Times writer blamed T.S. Eliot for this decline, for dealing the death blow. And I thought, boy, that's a death blow that took a hundred years oh. to happen. <laughs> a century of decline. We're still in the middle of it. <laughs> right. So, okay. So there's, let's just say, I mean, I'm laughing at it because if, if you write poetry or if you read poetry, you hear this kind of argument all the time. Well, this kind of pronouncement all the time. The poetry doesn't matter. Nobody writes good poetry anymore. Fill in the blank about poetry's uh, uselessness. So such articles and such pronouncements are, are actually sort of parodies of themselves. But I'm just going to ask you straight out, for you, why and how does poetry live and matter? Well, to me, it's very much alive. <laughs> it's how I think. It's how I understand the world. It's how I work through some of the very most difficult questions about who we are and how we're living. To me, it's it's kind of central to understanding uh, ourselves as a species. That's it in a nutshell, what poetry is to me, how it lives. It's kind of interesting that that article was, if I'm remembering right, the basic crux of that, of that opinion piece was that T.S. Eliot wrote The Wasteland, articulating 
the decline of nature, like humanity's alienation from nature. And that was the last, that was it for this, this writer whose name I can't remember right now. <laughs> See, that's interesting because we can't remember the, the opinion pieces, the writer, the opinion piece, but of course we can remember Elliot. <laughs> but it's a really, that's always a really, to my ear, a really conservative argument every time it's made because it's articulating change really it's like articulating a reaction to change to me it's like poetry is not dying it is changing as it ever is and that is kind of a sign of its health but we don't see it we don't see a poem in the newspaper quite so readily the book review culture is in this uncertain state it's kind of vanished in a way and so that must mean death <laughs> like there's a, a few steps skipped for me when that argument is made but poetry is really it lives in as ever in the very most intrinsic and important ideas and and emotional tenors and and kind of everything that is the stuff that we think is most important in the world like any sort of art that's that's what poetry is doing for me and it's like saying music is dead <laughs> dance is dead like, like eating is dead yeah exactly, exactly. <laughs> no it's okay it's still around it's just becoming something that you might not recognize at first yeah or you might have to take some time to understand or, or it, it might make you feel awkward or, or uncomfortable and it might make you feel awkward or uncomfortable or it might know. require you to to really dig in and there are uh, again all manner of ways and and ways that you can kind of just skip along the surface of things and poetry asks you to dive deeper yeah and i think that was his other argument about uh, t.s Eliot is uh, the amount of uh, esoteric references he had to very personal sources for for himself and uh and i thought really wow that's solved by reading a you know reading a book um yeah. <laughs> Or, or actually, it's also solved by giving up the idea that you can know everything about a piece of writing anyway, because right. it doesn't matter what the piece of writing is, you, you don't know it thoroughly ever. Or that the things that you know, everyone should know. Well, as I often say to, uh, to my students when I'm, when I'm teaching a difficult text, that complete understanding is overrated. Yeah, there you go. There right. You go. Yeah. That yeah. Uh, it's it's good to have some understanding of the text and to and to work towards that. But the idea that it's it's you are going to uh, master the text, dominate the text, and know it in its entirety is sure to be frustrating. Yeah, at the least. Yeah, yeah. When I was um, doing the BFA in writing at the University of Victoria. Tim Wilburn was one of my teachers. He would say often about, he would give us these sort of sidelong lessons about how to read poetry alongside how to write it and just encouraging us to just let it wash through you, like read it and don't feel you need to clutch on to every, every word, you know, don't feel you have to solve the mystery. You don't have to know everything. You can just follow along. And if you're lost, understand that you're lost and then proceed, like just to be a little more zen about it. Like, And that was, I took that to heart. That meant a lot to hear that. And I think he was trying to undo a lot. It requires that you be 
there with it at all times. And often you have to kind of just be in the mire of it and something will clarify and some you'll grab on for a while and then you get washed away again. Like the process of reading poetry can be a lot more free. I don't know whether you saw this um, on Twitter, but there is a conservative critic who is really angry at the plot of The Glass Onion because it's a mystery plot. <laughs> and he said, well, this, is a, this is a terrible way to make a movie. And someone else tweeted, uh, don't anyone tell him about Agatha Christie. <laughs> right? but, but to me, that, that was the same sort of reading style. How dare something be kept from me as a viewer, right? And I think, well, come on, aren't you reading or, or watching or listening to music to find things out, to discover, right? Yeah, yeah. And I guess some pe for some people, the answer is no. Yeah. They want to know the terms ahead of time. And if they don't agree to those terms, they're out. The next question I had was about when you were an emerging writer, mm -hmm. right? So we're, we're talking about sort of how your aesthetic has developed uh, in part through uh, through study and in part through having a mentor like Tim Lilburn, who's a fantastic poet. Back at the beginning of the beginning, what was your biggest concerns about writing in any genre at all, and then uh, then poetry in particular? It was mainly, how do I do it? You know, just how do I do this, and how do I do it well, and how do I fit it into my life? How do I not get completely waylaid by wage earning? How do I have space for it? How do I get better when I'm alone uh, in a room doing this and don't have a community? Like there were lots of really kind of day-to-day -day nuts and bolts sort of questions that I had. I needed to go to school to help like figure out, to establish like what a writing practice is, what it could be, how to defend it, you know, how reading fits in with writing practice. It was really uh, practical. I needed the practical nuts and bolts. I had the desire I grew up playing music and dancing and doing a lot of art as a child. So the practice of writing was something itself that felt really natural and really necessary. But then to get to doing it well, I needed the help of others. You know, and it's interesting because I'm asked quite a bit because I'm a poetry professor as well as a, a practitioner, if I think it's necessary to go to to go to university or college oh. to to study uh, poetry. And my answer is always no. Mm -hmm. But one thing a, a university or college will give you is time with people who have done that in their lives and time with other emerging writers who you can talk to. If you can get that any other way, then don't go can go to university. Mm -hmm. You can do that by creating your own artistic community. It's just harder. Yeah. Definitely. I was much the same. I knew that I needed the kind of ready-made community of a, of a school, of a writing program. I needed that help to, to kind of have people suddenly around me, suddenly interested in the same things, as well as like mentors to show me how to do this. Prior to school, I'd been going to readings and open mics and stuff and just desperately uncertain fundamentally introverted, really wanting community, but not quite figuring out how to sort of be in it, not feeling like I had any right, like I was such a mm. beginner, like, what do I know? How can I talk with people about this when I know nothing, that kind of thing. So for me, the ready-madeness of a writing program really was the ticket, was just the ticket for me. But absolutely, not everyone 
needs that. I'm also not an autodidact. You know, I I needed assignments essentially mm. that really helped me to to not only just learn a bit about what's out there and but also to learn how to to read what's out there to learn the importance of knowing what's being written in the writing community these days like how essential it is to be a citizen of the writing community that fuels the writing as well so that brings us i, th I think right into fast commute I taught this recently, and one of the reasons I taught is that I wanted my students, and I wanted for myself too, um, to get involved in the sweep of this long poem, right? So this is a book that's one long poem, and that means uh, for people who've never uh, read a book that's a, a single long poem, it's not divided up into discrete lyrical units, but rather that lyricism runs through the whole book. Mm -hmm. The tone changes, the style changes, the things that you address change, but uh, there's a single lyric line that runs through it. Now, listeners, if you've never read a book length poem, let me tell you it's an amazing reading experience and you need to get a copy of Fast Commute in order to uh, experience it. Um, but I want to know, uh, Laurie, from you, how you decided on that form. Because, of course, then in one way you set aside the particular challenge of producing a standalone lyric on, on every page, but you take up a different kind of challenge of how to maintain that kind of through line that we associate often with a novel or with a, a narrative. So how did you arrive there? Essentially, I had two different stylistic threads going at once. One of them was very much a result of staring out a lot of train and bus windows, seeing for a period of a second or two something out the window and taking it down. So I'd have all of these little seemingly disconnected little chunks of poetry, a few lines at a time, that ended up being like this scroll, like just I was listing them. I was quite often tapping on my phone writing in a notebook, but I was amassing this unrelated list of imagery. And then alongside that, I had these larger things that I thought at first were discrete poems, individual one-pagers, nice and neat, that were kind of speaking in a way to that scroll, that long aphoristic sort of scroll, but they were all revolving around the same subject, they seem to be talking to one another in a way. So I tried, especially after uh, Tannis, you and I were in a writing group with a few other writers, the ones mentioned, we mentioned at the top of the spot here, Pam Mordecai, Madur Anand, and Sarah Tomi. I was bringing these things I thought were discrete poems to our writing group. And the comment I was getting from you guys often was like, nah, that title, it's kind of a nothing title. <laughs> so eventually I realized I just needed to strip those away. Just needed to take those off. And then once I did that, I started understanding how those two halves perhaps fit together, that there was perhaps a modulating between these few line snippets of imagery and the slightly longer meditations on certain things. So I just started weaving those two together and it 
seemed to kind of fall into place from there. Um, I love the fact that we were saying, oh, it's a nothing title. It's terrible. But of course, <laughs> this is a sort of talk that happens in writing groups. And well, you see, really it can be a key to something else, right? It is. Yeah, exactly. I will forever be thankful that you guys didn't like my titles. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that, was, that was really helpful advice. <laughs> what I think is, is fascinating about the way you describe the look through the bus or the, the, the site that you see through the bus or the train a window and how those become these they seem to be these tiny discrete little poems but when you were talking that made me think of a film reel right and how images are, are caught on a film reel and we're used to seeing them uh, speed it up and put all together but we can also slow them down and look at it uh, image by image and that there are even films that you know art films that take that as part of their uh, aesthetic right they want the action slowed down so you see it uh, frame by frame, right? Mm -hmm. I thought that was interesting how that, of course, you know, the, there'll be people talking about how brilliant that is in film, and then we ask them to do it in poetry, and people are going, wait, no, wait, Poetry's what's dead. going on? <laughs> <laughs> poetry is dead. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my one regret is Poetry is Dead magazine is not still, is not still uh, publishing, you know? That was, uh, <laughs> was great. Watershed Writers on Midtown Radio KW. You can find this and all our episodes on SoundCloud and on Spotify. If you'd like to learn more about the authors featured on the show, please visit our website at watershedwriters, all one word, dot ca. And now, back to our interview with Laurie D. Graham. Okay, I think we have talked enough about how and why, and I think we should get into um, actually reading some of it aloud and letting our listeners hear uh, what the effect is. Sure, I'll read a couple pages. This is one of the longer meditations, and it takes place in, or it, it occurred for me, I wrote the poem, I was walking around in Kitchener-Waterloo specific to that place for me. I don't say too much in this book overtly where the poems exist. They just kind of move through these places. This one's about crows. Quieter now, the engines, the roadwork, the generator, cement truck, steamroller, pedestrian hauler, the chunking of bike gears, the colossal vents of the curling rink, goose communication, your slow stabs of thought, and a winter of crows above, a system settling in over heated laces of concrete under darkening cradle of sky, the orange sodium triangle snapping into place for the night, the quivering of millions of flight feathers in wind, the tangle of humans hurling themselves home from their jobs under crows by the thousands, thick in the treetops. You hop the fence of your humanity to teem with the crisping choir of wings, minds in such numbers, speckling the steel-gray sky with their clamor and their planning, and they can hear you, your exhalations, your dumb wonder, your memory of magpie, gopher hole, poplar scent, Saskatoon, what canola smells like, and Roundup, and oil refineries lodged in this form, in this place, coursing its own river, which you want to get closer to, but haven't, and can't yet, and the crows let you admit it. Under their roiling dark bodies, you're nearly languageless. The people around you look up, 
and cower, floor it past the, this receding stand of trees, the roots with less and less to hold on to. Yet bird and human seem after the same thing, warmth, safety in numbers, an unperturbed sleep. Look how much farther the humans think they need to travel to find it. I love those crows. Roost, the roost over Waterloo. It was quite often on campus too. Yeah. Close by, yeah. Yeah, I, I would go visit them all the time. For those of you who don't know this, in November at about uh, four in the afternoon, you can see an enormous number of crows in many places in, in Waterloo and they're all roosting and they, they roost somewhere else before they go to where they finally sleep for the night. So they were often gathered in by the hundreds or maybe even the thousands on, on campus in the trees and on top of the buildings. It's both eerie and beautiful and mysterious and they all fly to Waterloo Park and they, and they sleep there. But uh, you can see them in, in a number of neighborhoods. I was very glad to see those crows just very happy. To, and I felt like those are my crows, right? <laughs> yes. you, you know, so you did, you've done something here that I think is interesting because you're right. You don't name, you don't say, Hey, this is the Laurier campus. Hey, I'm now in downtown Kitchener. Right. And so those kinds of markers aren't there, but because I do that kind of walking and, and looking, I thought those are my crows. And there's another, like on page 11, there's a whole scene on a riverbank. And I think, hey, I think I know where that is. That's in Kitchener, yeah, right? Exactly. It wasn't important that I know for sure that it was the, the spot I was thinking of, but it was important to me that I could make those connections imaginatively. Mm -hmm. I'm glad to hear that because that's exactly what I was trying for. Not to say the names of places, quite often the colonial names of the places I was, but instead to evoke them through other means, this the things that are there, and to have a reader perhaps recognize, but not need to recognize where this might be, and to, to even recognize it as something, well, I have a general understanding of this phenomenon, and it's it occurs in my place too. Like That felt to me like one of the things the book was about, essentially. So that's very great to hear. Okay, so there's this idea of like a specificity that gives us an anywhereness, but also the sort of toxic everywhereness of capitalism and commercialism and spaces being turned into commercial spaces uh, and sometimes rejected as commercial spaces and, and now existing in this kind of twilight position between being what we would think of as a natural green space and um, and something that that supports our uh, supports our lifestyle and our capitalist system. So these things that were used into uselessness. Yeah. Right. And when I taught this to students and I talked a lot about this idea of the sublime, right? This idea that writing nature in any form engages us in both a conversation with beauty and a conversation with terror, what is frightening. And uh, you can't have one without the other. Mm -hmm. So can you tell us a little bit about this idea of beauty, uselessness, ugliness, how you how you grappled with those a lot of this book and i would argue like the first half of this book of this poem is looking specifically at that the horror of what is called development you know like just the massive destruction and 
dereliction and waste of it. The other way I had two things going at once in this book was I was looking at the 401 corridor between London and Toronto, between Kitchener and Toronto, and seeing the interminable industrial parkishness of it, as well as kind of getting, trying to get to know its plants and its creeks and stuff. So in with what we would consider the natural world was this other natural detritus and really understanding that as a symbol of incredible colonialism, symbol of environmental collapse, like just seeing how looking at a lot that's been where the topsoil has been cleared off. It's just this like expanse of brown clay and the dozers moving through it, how that relates to the oil refineries that I grew up just east of, or how that relates to uh, the settlement of the West, the, the idea of making sure that there were lots of farmers on the land uh, after the indigenous peoples were cleared off it. So just putting those together felt like an important thing to do. Uh, at the same time, as there was this incredible grief looking at human-made destruction, I was also feeling myself needing to write odes to what remains, you know, like the mud puddle that insists on being there in spite of all the earth moving that's going on around it, or the beetle that I see walking out of the muck in on a construction site, or little set of mouse tracks through snow after lot has been dozed and, and the snow falls on it. So there was an insistence on seeing the beauty in these horrible scenes, uh, these really hard to look at scenes. I was slowing down to look at the terror, but then also seeing like how life insists and continues in a mode that perhaps we don't find necessarily hopeful or beautiful, but it's there. In asking that question, you've hit on, I think, the other major, major thread running through this book is that I'm grappling with the sublime through all through its 70 some pages. It's kind of a major, major, major part of it. I hear particularly from uh, when I when I teach a course in in dystopic fictions, I, I hear a lot from my students about the idea of hope punk which is a, a kind of a, an aesthetic now that it is infusing these dystopic narratives. And um, I haven't taught that course uh, since uh, the pandemic, since 2020. And I wonder what the shape of Hope Punk is is taking now, right? And so your, your comments about, uh, you know, about the beetle or seeing how the snow falls on 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 digging equipment or whatever, right? Um, the way that our ideas of beauty persist and change but have a place in, you know, in this kind of echo critical and, and sometimes grief struck uh, work of yours. It does feel like there the, there's an essential move. And this is what the book, I guess, is arguing. If you could say that a book of poetry has an argument in it, it's like... I usually do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's got what? something it wants to say, something it's, it's, it's working totally. towards, right? Totally. And this is again, like an arguable point. But the point that I think this book is trying to to make is about how necessary it is to have that work of like broadening your perspective, not just on where you are and what, what where you're living, but also on just how you look at things. You know, do you see like the 
mass destruction or do you see where life could reside like that to me felt like a if if the thing had a thesis it was maybe something like that like just understanding where you are in a broader way i love that phrase that you read in the in the crow uh, in the piece that you just read about hopping the fence of your humanity right yeah. right and thinking wow what what's, <laughs> what would happen if right we could we could hop the fence of our humanity for five minutes a day right yeah yeah do that reach so i love that and i love the the dumb wonder because i often feel if i'm um <laughs> often say to people who want to get into uh, bird watching you have to be prepared to look kind of stupid in public because everyone else will be looking at everyone else and you'll be staring up at something. <laughs> That's right. And people will ask you if you need help. <laughs> and it's like, nope, <laughs> just slowing down and looking at the natural world. I appreciate right. your, uh, your offer, but I'm really just looking at that crow or I'm really just seeing if these are uh, high bush cranberries. That's, mm -hmm. that's all I'm doing, right? In order to do this, so you're not just doing uh, following the, the the very immediate echo critical piece. Um, you have a long look back at personal history and at global history as well, uh, and the history of migration and the history of movement uh, that is not so much migratory but movement within a country as well. So, can you say a little bit there about how you have global history and then a kind of um, micro example of that within a country? At the same time as I'm tying our present moment to our colonial past, insofar as I'm a settler on this continent and am descendants of people who moved to Alberta, what is now Alberta and Saskatchewan, to farm to settle their families in this new place. I was connecting that in this book with the rather itinerant life that I have now, where I have been moving quite a lot over the past 20 years or so within Ontario to BC, etc. And um, I've got a I'm working on new poems now that are getting into this and in, in a little more detail, perhaps the connection for me is one of, I, I guess, essentially inheritance, how I've inherited in an implicit way, perhaps an unwanted way. The idea that you don't stay where you were born. I don't, I can't count a single relative, save for my brother, who was born and continues to live in, in that same place. That's something that I think is a bit of an epidemic among other species in a way. Just seeing that idea of constant movement and following the money, essentially, like following opportunity, quote unquote, following jobs following livelihoods and going wherever you need to go for that rather than having lifelong relationship with, with the place you were born. So, and also the difficult legacy. I mean, I was I said we, we would come back to this idea of, of the prairies and thinking of the prairies as, as that idea of the home place, right? Which a generation of writers, the generation of prairie writers before us, so Robert Croach and and Patrick Lane and uh, Lorna Crozier, etc. There's people who did a lot of work about what it is to write uh, the prairies as mm -hmm. this kind of um, strange space of being next to your country, <laughs> right? Uh, and um, difficult land to farm, difficult weather, not the big cities. And some of them started to get into, as 
exactly what, what you have uh, said, this idea of a migratory history and also a history of displacement of Indigenous peoples. But the emphasis a generation ago was really to talk about how art could be made in such a place, or at yeah. least yeah. that's my interpretation. These other things were touched on, but the idea was that this was worth writing about. And that generation had to assert its worthiness. And then what we inherit is, okay, now we've asserted its worthiness as a subject. What more are we going to say about it? That's right. Yeah. That generation was was trying to say there are places other than Toronto, other than the city that people make art. And that was, I think, a really crucial point to make at the time. To me, I feel like I've inherited that a little bit. But yes, it is. It is a place where art exists. It is a place that can be in art. And now let's talk about what that place is and what it has done. Like, it feels to me there's now an opening that yeah. that we can crawl through. But then there's the question of what, what do we do about this idea of the home place when the home place is something that's built on colonial violence, right? That's right? What does that say about our melancholia being separated from it or our mm -hmm. or our nostalgia, et cetera, right? Yeah. yeah. And probably not for no reason, none of my relatives are there anymore in that home place. It's still talked about as the home place, but everybody left. And that's that could probably be said for the vast majority of of people descended from homesteaders, how many of them are still on that land? Like it, it was an experiment that I would argue it has failed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> if you want to get kind of blunt about that one, but but that's a harder it. admission when you're a farmer, right? Much much harder admission, right? It, it is, yeah. I was just at the homesteads of my families over the summer. Took a couple of trips through that those lands, which are now being gobbled up by large companies, by land magnates and corporations, essentially, who are then renting that land out or farming it themselves. And now there's a process of really raising every every sign of life that was there before. So on some of the quarter sections that my families landed on, there's not a single structure on it anymore. Of the, the physical features of the land, hills, trees, swamps are either there, everything's kind of dozed to a, a flatness uh, so that more crop can be put on it. So it's kind of, there's an erasure, a continuing erasure going on in that land. It's literally, it's, it's canola as far as the eye can see, or it's wheat. There are no distinguishing features or very like exceedingly diminished distinguishing features of that. So gone are the dugouts and the shelter belts and, and yeah. the sloughs and everything that supported, you know, That's supported right. um, the environment, right? And That's kept the topsoil from blowing away and... Right. That make the, make the places what they are. Um, and I mean, this is something that my ancestors also did. They came and they cleared trees and they planted crops. Like, that's it's not the first time that this has occurred now seeing a, a new iteration of it where where the bottom line really is how much how, how many inches square inches of, of profitable space can you make on this lot of land it, so it's it continues on the heels of that i'm going to ask you to read again from sure. uh, fast commute i'm going to read another few pages about following the money Aggregate conveyor pokes above the tree line at sunrise. 
Silhouettes of crows perched in the silhouettes of trees. Fires not yet ripped through here. Sun orange and correctly ascending over new mountains of developer's slag. All the forlease signs along the artery. All the styrofoam castles forming in the boonies. The signs won't stay up in the wind. School buses bumping down the highway like apocalypse. Earth mounded up, garbage gathering at the stumps of hills, a canal of it grazing the house's foundations. Brownfield and a flash of fresh wood chips, blue branches and red ones and yellow ones in a sea of grays, winter unending but constantly interrupted. To cross this high over a creek, to stay that far away and claim to live here. I had a dream about a return of warmth, sudden and lively. Scratching a dog's ears and getting a nuzzle in return. People gathered beside water. A big five-armed birch. I woke to maples bleeding sap on the sidewalks. I woke trying to tally the loss in the clear cut. All that intelligence wiped out for parcels of capitalist language. How I might also be a tree ripped out and the machinery interrupting any chance to dig in, to know somewhere. The fury that builds whenever we pull up stakes and the need to do it, to follow the money, the relief I feel. Geometric morning, gray glass twinkling to the apex of my vision. I stare hard at the pigeons on the ledge, the dead crow on the white line, the dead crow each day on the white line turning to powder, feathers disintegrating in cold rain. Blue spruce in a concrete coffin barking with sparrows. Cacophony of headlight, streetlight, lit sign, double-paned, sliding, seeming to pass through one another. Kids springing high from the alleys. The busted bellows of the factories. Birch disorganized, keening on choppy, warm clay. Discarded wire fence, indistinguishable from raspberry cane in this light. Remember your smell as you mixed with wind? The scent of wind through your body? I grow into each new place with scraps of elsewhere. Starting ignorant every few years, learning how to set the expression and the posture to make it look like my knowledge possesses the possibility of depth. And then eventually the body settled into its placement. I become more like myself in that expression that posture. It's not the right way in. Its bedrock is crudscape and monuments, the basic features any city shares. Finally, here's a cone of chestnut flowers low enough that I can smell it, learn if it has any scent. Like the woman in the Costco who lives in a language other than this one, trying to smell a sealed jug of vinegar and the looks she got. The revulsion. Whew. That is a heck of a sequence. Um, the following the money and the need to be 
so peripatetic that you have to start over again in, in each place, right? I, um, that is very familiar to me. And I was interested in that, you know, the need to do it and the relief I feel, which is the, the phrase you learn. We talked about that a lot in class. And mm-hmm. can you say uh, about that idea of there's fury and then there's relief and then there's this comment on the fact that, that you're relieved despite yourself? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. The relief of knowing that you're going to stay housed. <laughs> you have a viable plan to help you sleep indoors for a stretch of years. There's that, which is a very, to me, a very fundamental sort of feeling of like, oh, we're, we're going to be okay for a stretch. Alongside the also very fundamental desire to stay in one place to dig in and get to have a long relationship with a place and having those two exist in opposition just was feeling and still feels completely antithetical to how one ought to live. Mm. <laughs> so that's what those lines were essentially trying to trying to articulate. And that's, I mean, the relief is also an acknowledgement of falling prey to the thing, this, the, the, implicit encouragement to kind of stay along the surface of things because that's where you will benefit you know you will realize certain economic benefits to not digging in just go follow the money you'll be fine you'll do well that way like that's the rage springs from that yeah and i and i love that that image of uh, the woman uh, sniffing the outside of the bleach bottle to see what it is because, yeah. you know, if she can't read the label, she has to know what she's buying. And you sniffing, or the, the narrator sniffing the uh, the flowers to find out what they are, right? And everyone doing their best to be here, but she gets looks of revulsion. And um, you don't say what kind of look you're getting. Yeah, but, I tried uh, to ignore it. I tried to ignore yeah. if there was anyone saying, what the hell is she doing? Doesn't she know that those flowers don't have any scent? Yeah. Just blocking that out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Ah, okay. I want to just turn to a a review that Fast Commuters had in uh, the magazine Alberta Views. And the reviewer Kelly Shepard remarks that it's uh, an inventory or a checklist of damages. I thought that was intriguing. But he also goes on to say something I thought it's kind of, um, I don't know, it made me think of it differently. Uh, He calls the poetry a collection of incantatory verses. And I thought, well, hmm, is he talking about the tone or the the aim, right? Because to have uh, an incantation is to want to to call something up, right? To have a cast a spell or call up a charm to have a magical effect. And I thought, but this book is very much not about magical effects. So I don't know. How did you receive that that kind of reading? I thought that was pretty interesting too when I read it and. That maybe my thought was perhaps that speaks to that one part or that one style or form in the book that has the brief lines kind of spaced far apart on the page. I could see how there'd be something incantatory to that reciting of what's there and not leading to some sort of central conclusion, I guess. Um, but I guess the other thing too is it could be thought that the 
book is slowing down, kind of like the film uh, analogy you made earlier. The film, the, the book is trying to slow us down to really look at the things that skid by us in our day-to-day -day lives. And even that act of like, of, of altering the speed at which we proceed through our lives might be thought of as incantatory, trying to call up something else. I was okay with with hearing that word, um, but yeah, I, I was very interested in making sure that both feet were planted on the real and actual ground. You know, like really yeah, not yeah. trying to call up a spell, but uh, but the music of some of the forms that the book takes might might do a bit of that, or might might enact that alteration or whatever. And you've said that you are working on something else right now. And I, you know, I know in some ways it's kind of a, it's a terrible question to ask an author who just has a book out. Well, that's good. And what next? What <laughs> right? yeah. Yes, you just spent the you know, last five years writing this, but what else are you doing? Right. But, you know, I'm going to ask anyway, because I know you, you, you mentioned that you're working on another project. Can you tell us a little about it? Certainly. Yeah. The thing with my work I'm realizing is that it all is sort of of a larger piece. Uh, so my first two books and this third one that just came out, they're all moving toward a similar, very large topic. And, and this fourth one is is perhaps no different. If it becomes a book, I, I, I hope it does. It is really kind of delving deeper into the idea of, well, the immigration of, of all my great grandparents to this continent. Uh, about a century ago. The first of them moved here in 1903. The last of them moved in 1927. So that's the stretch of years where my families came to be in this country. And and trying to say something about that move, trying to know as much as is possible to know about why it occurred, about what they left. And the thing that I can grasp onto a little more readily is to understand the aftermath of that, kind of what what the legacy of that move was and the splits that that it fissures, it created the uh, lack of understanding of of like my own history, like it kind of goes back only a certain way. And that ship really erased a lot of stuff prior to that, the active suppression of what was left as well in certain cases like it was uh really kept under wraps by some of my great grandparents my my parents were their grandchildren sometimes they would ask so what was the old country like or ask some specific question about family and the answer would often be well why do you want to know so it's really kind of delving into that a little bit more and and thinking about its legacies so is it's more about the the piece about the Holodomor, the Stalinist starvation of of uh, Ukrainians in the in the twenties and thirties. I don't know the extent to which my family was affected by that. My my mother is Ukrainian and a uh, little bit Polish. The border kind of changes, and it's a, a murky thing. But but to know what was left is is nearly impossible. It might be that my family was in some way affected by Holodomor. And it's, it's always shocking to see how quickly those kinds of histories can be erased. Generation and a half, right? Yeah. 
Where did that history go? We're documenting everything now. And there's so many of us that can't trace back more than 50 years. No, exactly. That's exactly it. And that, like, that's, that to me is a loss. Is a, just like, you know, if you cut down that stand of trees, you're not getting that back. If you Mm. make, if you see to it that you don't share the stories of where you come from, that's lost. That was, I think for some of my relatives, the intent was to make sure that that wasn't remembered. So I'm going to half recommend a Yale course that is on their YouTube channel. Timothy Snyder, the historian, his expertise is Eastern Europe. And he was doing a course on the modern Ukrainian state, which I've been tuning into and have learned a lot. Like I, I know quite a lot more just about the general circumstances that my forebears were in before they left. That's been really helpful to me, uh, especially since since February too, since the, the invasion began last year, just trying to understand that. To know the specifics is, is quite hard. I want to pick up on something you you said a little earlier that your artistic uh, forms in your childhood include uh, making music and and dancing. Were you a Ukrainian dancer? I did for a little while. I was mostly doing the ballet and tap and quote unquote jazz. But yeah, I did do I did a bit of Ukrainian dance as a child. No, I I just wondered. It's just. uh... Um, you know, I'm from Winnipeg, and uh, there's a very large conglomeration of um, uh, Ukrainian immigrants there. I wondered if you had the ribbons in your hair and the beautiful sure skirt. Did. Sure did, yeah, for a little while. But I wanted to do the boys' parts all the time. They had the the bombastic big jumps, which I could do. <laughs> they wouldn't let me. Could you? <laughs> yeah. Really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, I loved, I loved the male dance parts in Ukrainian dancing. And the the, the girls would often do the polka step with their arms up. I saw a Ukrainian dance troupe um, do exactly those moves um, like a handful of years ago after not seeing it for about 30 years. And I, all I could think of was these people are elite athletes. Look at that. You know, right. It's astounding. It's astounding stuff. Yeah. I love it. Love it. Well, I think that uh, wraps up our episode. I really want to thank you for, for joining us and for telling us so much about this wonderful book, Fast Commute, and uh, about your upcoming work. Thank you so much, Janice. I really had fun. I always admire your tough-mindedness in addressing the difficult matter of um, writing settler responsibility to uh, to the land and to Indigenous cultures. So thank you for that, too. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Janice. Fast Commute is published by McClelland and Stewart, and it's available wherever fine books are sold. Once again, I'll ask you to remember to support your local independent bookstore, That would be like Wordsworth Books in Waterloo, The Bookshelf in Guelph, or the newly opened Rookery Books now in Cambridge. Thanks for joining us. For our talk with Laurie D. Graham, Watershed Writers comes to you every Saturday at 10 a.m. here on Midtown Radio. And if you miss an episode, or if you simply want to listen again, you can catch up with episodes posted to SoundCloud and to our website at watershedwritersalloneword.ca. Coming up on our next episode of Watershed Writers, we'll talk to Coral Andrews, who will be talking with us about her first book, 
all about the punk and alternative music scene in Kitchener in the 1980s. Her memoir is titled The Back Door. So tune in for that. We are produced in partnership with the Idea Exchange and the Waterloo Public Library. In the studio, we are a team of three. Francis Roberts Riley is the show's founder and producer, our fearless leader. John Roscoe is our technical producer, and I am your host, Tannis McDonald. Our theme music is Water by the Kitchener singer-songwriter, Alicia Brilla. Please join us again next week to listen local and think global. <laughs>